welcome to the Whole Story Podcast. This podcast series is focused on inspiring sustainability in agriculture using the framework of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, also known as the SDGs. Each week, our guests are invited to share their story, highlight a particular one of the 17 goals, and leave us with some practical tips for sustainability on farms. I'm Bex Smith, founder of The Whole Story, a B Corp certified social enterprise inspiring, facilitating, and articulating holistic sustainability in agriculture. And this podcast has been brought to life in partnership with the incredible team at FMG, who are passionate about partnering with organisations like The Whole Story, so together we can support rural New Zealand. So whatever you're doing while listening to this episode, thanks for choosing us. The best way you can support our mahi is to follow and share the show on whatever app you're listening on, and I hope this episode leaves you inspired and excited about the bigger picture of sustainability in agriculture. Today on the Whole Story podcast, I got the incredible opportunity to chat to Julia Jones, Head of Analytics at NZX, where she has arrived after spending almost 15 years in the rural banking sector before moving to KPMG and consulting. It is this experience, and her passions, that make her the perfect guest to speak on this week's episode, which is based around the UN Sustainable Development Goal 9, Industry, Infrastructure and Innovation and we touch on the successes and opportunities for all three of these in our conversation. Julia's LinkedIn tagline is inspiring, driving change, and keeping it real. And she sure does that. Make sure you have a listen to enjoy her hilarious stories about experiences in the real farming world, and see if you can list the many opportunities that she presents for us in the agricultural sector in New Zealand. So welcome along, everybody. Today on the Whole Story podcast, we have with us Julia Jones. Now, she will be no stranger to many of you, but she is the head of analytics at NZX. And today we're going to be talking about the three big eyes of industry, infrastructure and innovation in agriculture. So welcome along, Julia. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, no worries. It's great to have you here. And I know that you've, you're a busy lady and you've had a busy couple of months. And so I do really appreciate your time. Oh, look, I don't think I own the exclusive rights to busy. I think everyone's everyone's manic right now, and I, I don't think it matters um, what you're doing in your world. I, I doubt anyone's got a whole heap of spare time, so I'm always grateful when people take the time to talk to me. Oh, well, thank you. We'll kick into it then, and I would love myself personally and our listeners to hear the story of Julia Jones. Oh, it's a funny one. Like, I don't necessarily feel it's a particularly interesting story. My parents emigrated from Liverpool before I was born um, with my brother and sister. And, and the reason I bring that up is, I guess, I, over the last couple of years, lost both parents. And I think you start to have an appreciation for whoever the person you are today comes from what your parents have sacrificed. And I think you never really realise how much people sacrifice until they've gone. I thank my parents for moving from the UK. No offence to the UK, but um, I think the opportunities here for myself and my brother and sister have just been exponential to what they would have been if they stayed in Liverpool. They moved to Ross, of all places in the world. (laughs) So I had the opportunity to grow up in a farming town. Mum and dad aren't farmers. Mum and dad were the typical people that moved from a large city and got lots of animals. And so we had a ram, a pet ram that got very big and used to chase hitchhikers down the road and just things like that. So I think I learned to adventure and discover and be curious because when you live in a rural town, 
you can be five years old and spend all day out playing. There used to be this huge big hay shed that we used to play in that we weren't meant to in case the hay fell on us. And I was talking to a friend a couple of years ago and she reminded me that I used to be the one that jumped in the big holes and things like that. So I think in that context, you know, growing up in a small town, look, I'm not the world's most educated person. You know, I've studied as an adult, but I didn't finish a degree. I did extra study as I grew up. Mum and dad moved a lot. They weren't financially literate, so they would often make some interesting decisions, I guess. And they had some levels of bad luck along the way as well. So they lost every property to mortgagee sale. And that probably gave me a bit of drive to help people understand their positions and, and why I'm so driven to help people change. Because I think mum and dad, they're really good people, gave us unconditional love, but they always kind of had this chip about the world being against them. And I think when you spend your life thinking that there are people against you, then you don't actually think about how you can make changes yourself. You don't take responsibility and you don't look forward. I've done cool stuff, like, you know, I was a swimming coach. I worked at the toy warehouse and retail. I volunteered at SPCA because I was a currency trader when I started out. And that's a really awesome environment at the same time, quite an unrealistic environment. So when you're hosing dog poo, it actually brings you back down to earth. And I, the big thing for me was always staying grounded, regardless of what I did. And then moving through into rural banking was incredible. Big, big journey. Went in there, I think it was six months before the GFC hit. Never lent any money out and was running a large rural banking team in the Waikato. So it's, I guess a lot of my learning and my story comes from just having great courage to take leaps of faith and just make things work. You know, my role was made redundant and I went into KPMG and, and worked with Ian Proudfoot, which is just the best experience ever. You know, he's still a very dear friend, mentor to me. I've got great friends from KPMG and from ANZ and the banks that I've worked at, ASB, um, all these things that you sort of collect friends as you go. And yeah, it's just, I don't know if it's a particularly interesting story. I'm big on investing in my own learning. So I went in 2010, I went up to Harvard University in Shanghai and did an agri program. Look, I was so green and too young to be there and, and all these things, but there's something powerful about understanding your insignificance and what you don't understand, and that gives you greater hunger to learn. Um, and that sort of set off more learning from there onwards. And then, like KPMG, you know, I got to go to Russia and do heaps of cool stuff. Now I'm at NZX, and within 12 months of being there, COVID hit. So it's just learning after learning after learning. I'll never stop growing. Obviously, not physically, because I'm about four foot eleven, but I never want to stop growing my brain and my thinking. That's such a cool story, Julia. I think it's really interesting. And I think some of the real key takeaways there that resonate with me is that gratitude for the way that your parents shape you and those experiences young in life and that they had and how that actually, you know, shapes who you've become as an adult. And I think it's so poignant that point that you bring up that we don't often reflect on that or recognize those sacrifices until they're gone. So Big take home to everyone. Show some gratitude to those you love still around you because while they're here, because we don't want to just leave it all till they're not. Yeah, I read a really cool thing a couple of weeks ago and it said, we forget that our, as we're growing up, our parents are growing and learning too. And, you know, one thing we realised with mum and dad is they left the UK, they left all their family, all their support network, and they literally came to New Zealand with 10 pounds. And so, you know, when you think of all that and then they were never in a financial position to really go back. So... You know, the sacrifices I think that our parents and our family make for our lives to be a little bit easier. I'm not saying that 
people don't appreciate it. I think at times we probably don't have an awareness of it. So, you know, thank you, parents. <laughs> yeah, and also I was really curious to know more about is you talk about the the courage that you've had to, I guess, push yourself out of your comfort zone or into spaces that you feel quite inexperienced and all for the striving of that love of learning. But where do you think that courage and bravery to do that came from? I don't want to sound cheesy or dramatic, but like my mum was a, a very high-functioning alcoholic. So I got myself ready for school from the age of eight or nine. And again, I'm not trying to like, well, woe is me or anything like that. But it's just about having no choice. And that probably sounds awful to some, but the reality of it is, when we believe that there's a choice to not do something, we won't do it. I don't know. I just always had this weird, unwavering kind of thing in my head that said I would just get shit done and I would get myself up for school and I would do the things that I needed to do. Probably been through lots of loss. And I, I don't know if people have ever been through like mortgagee sales. It's pretty awful. And it's not necessarily for me because I was a kid, but watching your parents falling apart, watching the guilt and shame on your parents and things like that. And again, I love my parents dearly, but, you know, I never wanted to be like them. And I think that to not be like something and to, to, to move away from something means that you work really hard to have courage. I'm not a brave person, so I don't like any adventure sports. I don't like anything that is scary. I mean, I ride horses, that's reasonably scary. You know, I'm terrified every minute I'm doing it, but sometimes you have to just push through because it happens. I've had lots of it. And, and the thing about that too sometimes means that I don't I'm can be less empathetic because I might look at something that someone's upset about and go, whatever, that's not even that bad. But I think we have to remember that hardship or difficulty is relative to people. It's not just because we don't find it difficult doesn't mean it's not difficult for that person yeah. who may not have been through much. So I feel sad for people who have had very textbook lives. Because I think when you've actually had to roll with the punches, we lived in Kowado, we lived in, which I'm not putting down, it was a cold place, but you know, my brother got beat up, my sister got sent away, my dad struggled, there were strikes. Again, I don't want to be dramatic, but we literally couldn't afford food. This isn't a storybook life that's been all about fluff. And I've grown up in the hard school knocks, and that gives you courage. Because you either break and fall apart, or you get hard and you just get on with shit. Yeah, it's certainly character building stuff and a connection there that I didn't realise because actually my grandparents were, they immigrated to Kaurau too. So, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, so that's crazy. My mum grew up there. It's a small world in New Zealand, right? It is. It's a very tidy world. So onto a topic that's dear to my heart, sustainability. Now, it's a really big word and it gets thrown around a lot and has a lot of different personal meanings to different people. But what does sustainability mean to you, Julia? For me, it's probably a holistic continuation of survival. So that would mean financial, that means planet, that means people, that means animals. And, and the holistic I mean as in our ability as a human race um, or a business to sustain into the future. So I, I don't necessarily go straight to an environmental type of thing because I think obviously environmental is really important, but sustainability to me needs to cross into financial as well as environmental it can't just be environmental because bills need to get paid things need to get done we need to have businesses roll but we also need to make sure that we protect our beautiful planet that is not an infinite source of resource 
Yeah, you're speaking to my heart there. I mean, that's 100% why um, we've set up the whole story business model as I have, because it's all about really bringing that holistic viewpoint to sustainability and that it's not just a conversation about the environment. It's a conversation that has to be bigger than that, because we need everything to be functioning in order to, as you say, survive. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so you touched on earlier that your parents moved to a small rural town of Ross. Now, that was obviously your first link into agriculture, but then it sounds like you've had some sort of diversity in your career outside of agriculture. What made you come back into agriculture? Oh, it's it's always been there. It's really funny, and it's not a conscious thing of getting away from it. I guess I just um, wasn't very practical human so in my mind I couldn't see myself farming purely because I was so terrible at doing practical things so for me everything I've done has rotated back and I guess my first real link probably my most significant was when I was in currency and ASB and Fonterra changed their hedging policy and I went and spoke up at the large herds back in the day they used to have a thing called the large herds conference now the irony of this I think you had to have a herd of over 300 cows. So this was classes, um, large herds. And I went up to Northland and where the big conference was, and I spoke about the hedging policy that Fonterra had um, introduced. And Fonterra was new as well. So I think they'd only been set up within the previous six months. And that was it. Just got up and I talked the truth. I didn't know who Fonterra was, not bagging Fonterra or anything like that. So I bring the lawyers in or anything Fonterra, this is 20 years ago. Um, they were telling farmers to hedge currency. And I just was like, oh, that's so high risk. Why would you do it? And so I stood up and said that was really bad communication. They shouldn't do that. At 25, I challenged this. I got to write lots of articles about currency investing that people were doing and helping people understand the risks and the gains and whatever else you might get and all the fish hooks around it and got to speak at lots of events. Fonterra took me on the road as well. We did a couple of weeks talking to their shareholders around their currency hedging policy and what it meant and why they were doing it. Ever since that day, I've never, ever been out of it. Yeah, and I mean, it sounds like you didn't offend them too much if they took you on the road with them. So, wow. Yeah, she was a rocky road to get there, put it that way. It was such an interesting journey with that. And look, it was kind of a different environment, different organisation too, so certainly not reflecting on it as anything today. I guess for them, not many people challenged, and I just didn't understand what I was challenging. So I wasn't being a smarty pants going, oh, I'm going to take you on. I literally had no idea what I was doing. I literally just spoke the truth. Ironically, I, I thought it was naivety, but I still find myself doing that these days at the age of 47. So, you know, not much has changed for me. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for people as well who perhaps don't have those ingrained connections or, as you say, even just that depth of understanding in what they're challenging, but actually just standing up and speaking the truth. And I think that's really important to offer different perspectives and insight into things. Yeah, I was just really concerned for farmers at that point. When you're telling people to take on extra risk, that isn't good for them. And, you know, I was deep in currency. I understood that intimately. So although I probably didn't understand the bigger picture well, I understood the subject matter. And so I'm really grateful for that time because that's the thing that has that fish hooked my heart into egg. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and I'm grateful for that moment too because I think you're such an important um, shining beacon of hope and light in, in egg. So, yes, thank you for standing up at that moment and speaking your truth. Oh, thank you. 
So we like to put people in the hot seat next. And can you please tell us your funniest story relating to farming or agriculture? Oh, I think I have a lot because I'm literally the least practical person and quite unkind. But I, I've got an amazing friend, Tess Devine, who's family owned our kind of station in Kura. And she said to me, oh, come on, come on down and do docking or do you call it tailing down there? I'm not sure. And um, I was like, oh, okay, having no idea what this meant. Like I had no idea what it was. I was just such a fish out of water. I was such an egg. And I think I kind of helped, but you know, I don't know if you, um, or you do know because you're a vet, there's the blue stuff that you put on scabby mouth or something. And mm-hmm. they were like, just be careful, don't get it near you. And of course, the end of the day, I had it all over my face. Like it was an amazing operation. I think we were doing a thousand a day or something like that. Huge station. Well, three, three mobs of 300, sorry, a day, so not quite a thousand. People were like, you're going to get sick of that after a thousand. And then by the end of the week, I was just literally hard as nails. I was, I still couldn't lift the, like, the big, big lambs into the cradle, but um, amazing experience. It was just so picturesque, like it, it backs onto dock lambs. So you're literally under snow-capped mountains. It was just an incredible experience, but funny as hell. Like, I think most people wet their pants laughing the whole time. I love dogs. And of course, there's like... 25 dogs there and I'm not really meant to pat them because they're working dogs but then they sort of suss out that you're a crazy person that loves dogs and so then they kind of hang out with you it was the best best coolest time but also I don't think Tess has ever laughed at me so hard and we've had lots of experiences where she can laugh at me I've just got this wonderful mental image of you Julia out there with all the dogs around you you know rolling over for belly pats and you saying sorry to all the lambs going down the shoes and covered in the scabby mouth vaccine all over your face. Now what I want to know is did you end up with any of the actual scabby mouth lesions on your face after having that all over you or were you okay? No I was actually okay and that was the amazing thing because Tess was like looked up at me at one point and she just started laughing and she's like oh my god and like they gave me really good instructions like it was actually a very professional setup the guy who ran the place was very serious and did induction and was all a big on safety it's really important that this doesn't get near your face and you make sure that you do this and you know this is the way you do it to avoid it I don't know what's wrong with me like that's how uncoordinated I was so yeah after five days of getting it on my face I was fine so I don't know maybe I just developed a great sort of immunity after such a large amount large dosage came my way Julia Jones, the tailing smurf. <laughs> exactly. I <see> it now. <laughs> exactly. God. It was good times though. Good times. But yeah, very funny for everyone around me. And to be honest, anything you see me do at home would be funny. I think, you know, my neighbours get great laughs out of me. The farming neighbours around me understand my insanity. So yeah. I just love it. I just love being around animals. I love being outside, but I am so impractical. I, I envy and respect deeply when I watch farmers farming. When I watch videos of people doing things and it looks so just seamless and easy. I know it's not, but it looks it from the outside um, because my lack of coordination really kicks in. (laughs) Oh, well, life's too short to take seriously. So I'm glad that you get a laugh out of it and and other people around you. So that's cool. As a bit of a a contrast to that then, your role at NZX as Head of Analytics, can you tell us a little bit more about that and your journey to get there? Yeah, so it's very similar to my role at KPMG, to be honest. So I've got a team that look at dairy, Alex Winning and Stu Davison. He's amazing. Stu's a dairy farmer. When the previous dairy analyst left, I was really keen to not necessarily have someone that was an analyst analyst. And that might sound a bit awful. It's not that I don't respect that. But I needed someone who could communicate and understand 
the workings of the sector. And Stu's brilliant. He's has very deep knowledge. He works extremely hard. I think he's doing a finance master's as well. And then Alex looks at some of the international side of it and is also learning more and more about the sector. Then I've got Amy Castleton, who is the coolest woman in the world. So she is an economist. So she looks at the economy and interprets things. I get in the clouds really quickly and Amy keeps my feet on the ground when they need to be there. Then I've got also some people that look at equities. So they don't necessarily look at, you know, one equity or, for example, they wouldn't necessarily look if any Zealand was going up or down. What we do is look at the total market and what's trading across it. And then also look into ESG or sustainability is a really big part of what I look at as well. And TCFD and everything that's happening within the sort of sustainable space. So it's a broad role that touches, I guess, the surface of many different topics. An interesting point about that is how do you keep yourself in such a broad role without going too deep into a lot of those little topics? It's probably a little bit easy when you've got teams. Sometimes that's also a negative that I don't go deep enough. And so you might get a perspective on something that's, you don't get the heart of it. But it's not too bad because everything intersects. So when I look at sustainability, so if you look at TCFD, which is Task Force Related Financial Disclosure, you look at sustainability or ESG reporting or any of those things. ESG is literally just looking at the operational risk of a business and then putting a lens across environment, social and governance in there. A lot of things intersect. So I try and I guess I try and group things. And I'm really fortunate that I'm surrounded by people with great knowledge. The detail often comes from the team. So I might say to Amy, what's happening in the UK with the changes in budget? And she'll go away and look at the detail and come back and give me three bullet points of what it is. So it's, there'll be certain things I go deep on. So I tend to go deep into the sustainability ESG space. I'm really fortunate that the team can go deep into the knowledge and other areas. And also making sure that my stakeholder base or the people that I connect with are really different. Because it's if I'm not a little bit uncomfortable in some of my conversations, it means that I'm only hanging out with people that tell me what I want to hear. Yeah, magic. I really appreciate that. Bringing it back to the team and also surrounding yourself with a diverse network of people with different opinions and that it's so important to broaden your mind. It's not a joke when people say hi, people that are smarter than you. Like My team, and this is no, they're just brilliant. Every one of them is doing a master's degree. Every one of them is doing, and not because they're told to do it. This is out of their own desire to grow their knowledge and skill. I'm in awe of them, that the hard work that they put in. They've got families and they're still, it's not like their whole life is sitting there doing stuff at NZH. They actually have much wider lives outside that as well. They're all very busy people. That's so cool. Oh, a big shout out to your family. The Whole Stories work and this podcast series in particular is based around the framework of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And this episode in particular is focused on goal number nine, which is around building resilient infrastructure, promoting sustainable industrialization and fostering innovation. So I want to dive into that goal and discuss your thoughts on the New Zealand agricultural sector's progress towards targets within the goal. Yeah, hear what you're thinking around that. So it's a really big goal and it's really interesting. It's a great goal. New Zealand's agriculture is actually quite progressed in this space. If you wanted to be raw about infrastructure, yes, we've got terrible roads and we probably need better roads to ports and things like that. But I don't think that's in the control of our farmers and our growers there. But I think when you think about it, like the communities help each other industries and it might be feeling a little bit different at the moment but we do have industry bodies that if you are starting out there's a sense of equality around learning and connection things within the goal it talks about the access to credit 
So if you imagine you're in India and you've got a small micro block, it's very difficult to get lending or any level of credit. Whereas I think in New Zealand, although banking can be a bit painful at the moment, if you can actually stack up and show that you're capable of paying it back at some point over time, then you're able to get the money. I think the areas that we probably might be missing, and again, this is not in the control of our farmers, is our infrastructure around democratising, getting our growers closer to our consumer. So if you were a farmer, and I'm not saying that this works because I've gone through this with lots of people around their own brands, but if you wanted to have your own brand, it's really difficult because if you, in particular with meat, is if you want to have that processed, you have to do that at a time that is convenient to the processor and then that's not always made easy. So it might not work for your customer. So you don't have a lot of control because we don't have mobile abattoirs. We can't do home kill type stuff and legally sell it. I'm not criticising any of the meat companies that I don't want them on back either. If we looked at that sustainable goal, the one thing that I think is missing is the infrastructure capability that empowers a farmer to get their product into even a local market easily. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something that's on quite a few people's radars and, and um, a bit of explorations going into at the moment, which, you know, hopefully we'll start to see some more progress in that space. As you say, it's not for everybody and the meat companies do a wonderful job, but I think having options on the table mean that people can diversify their different businesses so that we have a, a range of options within New Zealand. My perspective of that goal was very much about making, giving everyone a fair go at, at having an opportunity. And I genuinely believe that's true in New Zealand. As I've said, I'm quite hopeless with actual practical farming. I've never sat with a farmer who hasn't been prepared to share their incredible knowledge that they may have got through generations. So I think in, in that sense, we've actually got a really great community. And that's what we do exceptionally well in ag is we do actually share our knowledge. If the neighbour was having trouble and came to you and asked for help, you're going to help them. It must be very difficult in some of those third world countries when you're trying to develop a farming standard where you're trying to develop based off your environment and you don't necessarily have the knowledge or support there. People can criticise the industry bodies as much as they like, but man, what they have done for people is exceptional. Support the knowledge that they've shared and provided to start up people, people who may just be changing and don't understand that have been in the sector for a long time. So I think we're very fortunate and my perspective is we're very progressed in this space. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. And I really do have a lot of respect and time for that culture of sharing and the support network that has been set up by our industry bodies. What are your thoughts around the innovation space, Julia? Because I know this one's dear to you. I think we're very good at it. I think it's also very scary. So I think we become very threatened. And, I, and again, not criticising anyone. I think at the moment there's just so much fear of losing relevance or, or losing everything we have and all this the fear is just making us all a bit, a bit mad really at the moment or angry but I think the reality of it is you know when someone tries something new this is a New Zealand thing not an ag thing by the way is when someone tries something new we love to beat them up when they fail and then we really love to beat them up when they succeed and I think what we do is we make it very difficult for people to innovate and grow because we we see failure as a failure we don't see failure as someone trying something and then learning from it and getting better at it just because I want to call myself regenerative and I might live next door to you doesn't mean that I'm criticising you. And I think we're starting to take things really personally. If someone wants to do something different to the way we do it. So instead of going, that's awesome, Barry, you're going to grow 
pineapples, you grow your pineapples, that's brilliant. People tend to go, well, he's growing pineapples because he thinks that dairy farming's bad or he thinks that sheep and beef's bad. Instead of just thinking there's actually plenty of space for all of us to do things a little bit differently, we have to have the same goals around looking after the planet and financially being able to support ourselves. I think ultimately innovation gets stifled by fear and people over-personalising it instead of encouraging people to be different, encouraging growth. It takes a lot of courage. I'm not built that way, so I could never be an entrepreneur because I don't have that kind of bottle to want to risk everything, you know, because I have an idea that I believe in. But there's a lot of people out there who take some amazing, huge risks to learn and grow. And I think we've actually got to give them the space to grow at the same time, those who don't innovate and those who are maybe more the get on with it. Let's not beat them up because they're not innovative enough for us. If we almost left the highly innovative people to be highly innovative and get on with it and then had those really good people that work behind them that get on with stuff and execute business well, then we'd actually have a really good combination. It's just about less judgment and less punishment. We don't need to punish people because they don't make a business work. This isn't someone stealing money from us. You know, when someone gives something a go and the business goes under, the business went under because it didn't work. It wasn't because the person did something bad or maybe they didn't run it properly. Maybe they didn't approach the right customers, but they gave it a go. What did they learn? What can we learn from it? And how do we move forward? And I think it's more of a, a culture around innovation rather than particular innovation. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so important, that real key point of there's space for all of us. And I have a term that I use that there's sort of the, the finders, the grinders and the minders. We need all of those different characters to actually function as a history, society, business, whatever you refer it to. And we've all got our parts to play, but we're not all going to be the same or even be expected to be the same as each other because that's not playing to our strengths. That's not the most efficient way forward. So we've all got different bits to do within the sector. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so I'd love to know as well, looking at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, Julia, which one of those aligns to you most personally and why? I think it's around that resilient infrastructure. The key word is resilience in the sense that we've got to set things up with the future in mind. And I think we tend to solve today's problem, which creates tomorrow's problem, instead of actually thinking about what infrastructure do we need next? What's going to support people? And also human resilience. How do we help people operate better? Do we hand out too much and not hand up? Many might disagree with that. I'll give you an example. One of the things that I found fascinating is when I went through the US a month ago now, I was in Hurricane Ian. Well, I wasn't in it. I was on the fringes of it, Hurricane Ian. And one of the towns I was meant to be going to with my friend, we had to stay in Jacksonville because we couldn't get to St. Augustine. And then we're watching it on the news and this place is flooded. It's underwater. We then turn up there probably 24 hours later and the shops and the restaurants were opening because they actually didn't have a choice. There's no one coming to save them. I think we get more resilience from having this sense of, and this is going to sound really macabre potentially, but all terrible. I think sometimes when you know no one else is coming to save you and you're it, you actually become a little bit more functional and focused. I think when you think that someone else will come and do it or assume that someone else has the solution, you don't get on with it. And I think resilience is the key, the thing that really resonates with me in that first part of the SDG 9 is really that resilience across infrastructure that's creating solutions for the future and that are future proof. And then also the other side of it 
is ensuring that our humans are resilient enough because resilience is not about being protected from bad things happening. Resilience is about actually learning how to cope with bad things that happen. That's the difference. Bad things will happen. We cannot in any way control that in many ways, but we can control how we respond to it, which is a cheesy cliche, but a true one. And I think that resilience is a muscle and you've just got to keep working on it. Being overly protected is not going to help you. And as far as infrastructure for the future, I mean, if you've watched the History Channel, they have amazing stuff on there that yeah, buildings and things have been built for thousands of years. So it's possible if people could do it hundreds or thousands of whatever years ago and build things that were going to be practical into the future, then we can start thinking more long term in our infrastructure space without worrying about being a hero. So for councils or central government, you know, you're only in for three years, so you only want to spend X dollars, so you want to show an instant result. The problem is we end up with short-term solutions for long-term problems. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think that's really important, that piece on resilience. Just, um, you know, don't wait for someone to save you. Look for what's within your control and take action within that space because that's how we'll weather the storms and set up, as you say, for long-term success. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you see as the biggest challenge to New Zealand's agricultural sector regarding sustainability? And how would you flip the script on that and turn it into an opportunity? Um, I think there's always going to be challenge. I think at the moment, our biggest challenge is probably our sense of overwhelm and fear. Um, and I think that come, that's projected in different ways. So there is so much coming at farmers right now. It is genuinely overwhelming. It is very difficult to keep. Look, I struggle, and I, you know, I'm, I have a desk job, so I struggle to keep up with a lot of stuff that's coming. When my job is to read and research, so I can only imagine if you've had twelve hours on the farm and then you come in and you try and keep up with it. We have mistaken criticizing with critically analyzing. So there's very little critical analysis around what we might need to do. And as you said before. How do we take control of what we can control? So firstly, do we even understand what we can control in our immediate circle of influence? Do we actually understand on our farm the three or four things? Do we actually measure it? Do we even know what we need to change? You know, I think sometimes we go on Facebook or we go on Twitter and we get hyped up and then we read an article where somebody says it's all shit. We keep focusing on what we'll lose rather than what we might gain. We have a, a loss mentality instead of a gain mentality we are not stopping and thinking and breathing and going what is actually happening what do I understand what do I need to do so we're not critically analyzing we think we are but all we're doing is as soon as something comes out so literally within five minutes of a release people are firing shots that it's crap before they've even read it now it might be crap they might be dead on the money with it but We've got to stop and take the time because there is so much that we can gain. We've got to stop dramatising numbers. You know, the other day, I think with the Hewakeki Noah, someone was like talking about it was 30% all farmers are going to go under. Well, it started off at four. It got to 20. Then I read 26 and then it got to 30. Well, none of the numbers and modelling has changed. Are we escalating numbers because we're panicking? Are we actually doing the right thing by our neighbour? by frightening them. And and when you are frightening people and you're making people feel like they are hopeless, that is not leadership. And I think that's the big thing that we need for sustainability is to think about the great things that we're going to gain. And we have to be really real about this. Whether you believe it was, you know, 
hairspray or the man or just general cycles, climate change is real. Things are evolving and we are going to have to adapt so we can continue to farm. That's whether we like it or not, that's that's just a given. So how do we actually look at that and how do we take opportunity within that? And how do we think about what we will gain from some of our change? But I think our biggest challenge is our mindset right now. If I had to put it down to one thing, I think our mindset has gone into a place of panic and hopelessness and it's spreading like wildfire instead of actually stopping and supporting people to understand what can we do today. There are also a number of people doing that. Unfortunately, the quiet ones are the ones that are just getting on with it, you know, and actually just digesting what's happening and controlling what they can control and moving with the times. You are not going to get a paint-by-numbers future. That would be lovely. We'd all love a paint-by-numbers future. Tomorrow you're going to have X happen. That's not how it is. There is uncertainty. It's going to continue to get more uncertain just because of the nature of the world and the best way to anchor yourself is to think about those things that you can control and the things that you can do and stop focusing on what you will lose and think about what we can gain as a sector together. You've just summed that up so wonderfully around that mindset and the strategies we need to use to actually change that and to take pause and critically analyse and control what you can control And I think the interesting thing is they're speaking about a paint-by-numbers solution. If you wanted a paint-by-numbers business, then you potentially shouldn't be in farming anyway because we're working in one of the most uncertain environments there is to do business in. Yeah, and I think there's a sense of I don't want to answer to anyone. Um, And I don't mean that in a terribly rude way, but I think if we were really really honest, I think a lot of people um, potentially get into farming to be their own boss. I think the key here is, though, is that everyone has to answer to everyone always. There is no such thing, unless you live completely off the grid, uh, in the middle of the bush in a tent and and never go to society, you know, even then you're going to have to answer to Mother Nature. And I think this whole thing, I won't be told what to do. Well, you know, everyone's kind of told what to do. And, you know, I'm not saying that you should not push back and I'm not saying you shouldn't question things, but question rather than constantly fight. It worries me, you know, at the moment, I just see my parents in the sector and and maybe that makes it a bit personal for me, but these people fighting and fighting and fighting inevitable change and they will have no energy left when they realise it's inevitable and want to change. And, and, you know, and and, and this whole thing about there'll be no farming and there's going to be farming. People will farm. People want to continue to farm. There will be farming. There will be food. But again, it comes down to mindset. We actually have choices and we can choose to, and again, I'm not saying we aren't allowed to fight back and I'm not saying that we aren't allowed to push and ask and question things, but God, critically analyse for God's sake. Stop criticising, you know. What does this actually mean to me? What does this mean to the business? What will we need to change? Because a lot of people probably find that there's not a massive amount that they need to change and some will find that there is. And so how do we support those that find that there is a lot for them to change? How do we wrap as much around them as we can so they know what to change and they feel supported in that process. And I think that's really important around energy conservation too. I mean that, you know, pick your battles and pick where your energy goes because, yeah, we do need to conserve our energy for the big changes that are ahead. Um, so I think that is a, it's a really important key take home for people is, you know, yes, you can use your energy to, as you say, to fight back, to question, to understand, but 
critically analyze and use your energy in a way that can actually be constructive. Yeah, that, that, that supports others to feel a sense of direction and hope. When you are telling people this is the end of farming, you are not leading. When you are telling people that it's all over and that there'll be no food and people will never be able to eat, I mean, people could win Academy Awards for some of the things that's dropping on social media right now around the the catastrophization of things. Key here is there's not one person out to get you. This isn't the first government in the world, or, or certainly not in New Zealand, to make an industry feel under threat. It's one of those things. I mean, geez, my mum used to work at the Labor Relations Department and she was made redundant and that was a real downturn in her time because they took away a lot of the labor laws and changed it. And these sectors that will be impacted all the time because governments will come in and change things. I think we over-empower governments by making it political. You know, we're over-empowering them. This is societal changes. This is just the world shifting at pace. And I, I don't know how to stop the whole world from moving this fast. Um, and again, don't waste energy fighting. A lot of it's just going to come at you and evolve, adapt, because there's people out there right now who are working out ways to take opportunity of this, you know, and they will be the ones that win on the day, not the ones that have fought it until they break themselves. Yeah, and I think that's really, really important. So thank you for that, Julia. What's on the cards for the next 12 months for you? So a couple of things. I probably want to maybe slow down a bit. I want to ride my horses more. I want to be around my animals more. I want to continue to learn though. So I really definitely want more travel um, in the next 12 months. So there'll be a couple more research trips next year, international travel, I cheer meet the need. So I really want to make sure that we get our structure and foundations in place with great strength so that the organisation can continue to succeed regardless of us. <laughs> so those are the things, getting more time with my animals, my friends and my family and really just enjoying learning and just getting joy back. If I could write myself a letter for the end of next year, I would say that I brought joy back to our sector because I think we've lost our joy in the thing that we genuinely all love. I'm going to tell you that I really want to work on my fitness and things like that and my weight, and, and I'm probably going to just say that and not do it. But health is really something that you just don't get a second chance at. So I definitely want to think about my health as well. I don't think I'm particularly unhealthy, but I want to keep maintaining that because as we get older, we need to put more focus into it. So definitely a well-being 12 months ahead. Um, and I want to share that with others, you know, bring others on that journey. I love that goal of bringing joy back. And it sounds like you're bringing joy back into your, you know, your personal life, your home life, um, but also your professional impact on the sector. So I think that's that's a really cool goal for the next 12 months is just bringing back the joy. Bringing back joy. That's, that's my key. That's perfect. So we like to leave our listeners right back at the grassroots level, Julia. And I know that that resonates with you because you've touched on it many points over this conversation, actually just keeping yourself grounded. So what is one practical take-home action that farming businesses can take to contribute to sustainability? I think the key here is, and because I'm, I'm impractical, I'm, I'm probably not going to be much use with it, but go and think about one or two things you can do around sustainability. Because I think what we kind of tell people is you've got to be super sustainable and you've got to do everything and it becomes overwhelming. Just do one or two things and do them really, really well. Here's the cool thing, right? So I'm going to give two things. One, think about the one or two cool things you can do. Two, actually stop and think about the things you already do. Like how many farmers do you know, and this is so cool, that rip down a fence and then reuse things. So 
farming is the ultimate recycling environment you know it's it's everyone tries to reuse everything that they can so you're already doing something awesome in that space you know I think it's probably time to take stock of what you do that is great already and give yourself a pat on the back because we can't constantly keep looking for external validation and if we don't believe in ourselves or we don't see the value in the things that we already do then it's really hard to expect others to see that and you know so think about the two things you can do differently. Don't 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 overcomplicate it. And then think about the things that you're already doing that are awesome. Write them on a list because you'll probably feel really good about yourself when you see that there's 15 things that you do already around sustainability. And hey, maybe some things you'll see that there's room for improvement, but take the time to, to appreciate yourself, appreciate what you've achieved and tell someone what you've done. Because I keep hearing people say things like, we're too busy to tell consumers or the public what we're up to. Well, unfortunately, they're not going to come and find the information. You have to be really overt and, and put it down their throats, basically, or get it in their face. And let's start writing lists of cool stuff we do already in sustainability and getting it out there. That's awesome, Julia, because that's one of the biggest things that I do with my one-to-one farming clients is the first thing we do is we sit down and we take stock of what they already do to contribute to sustainability on farm. And you'd be amazed how big that list gets and how empowered people feel, how proud people feel, and how blown away they are by that list of what they're actually already doing to contribute to sustainability. And I think it's one of the key things, as you mentioned, that we can do as farmers is actually to take stock of what we already do in the sustainability space and celebrate that success because, you know, we're not very good at actually celebrating that. And then, as you say, you know, share that out in the world. Tell your sustainability story because there are some really, really cool stuff already happening out there on farms. And there might be some things on your list that you can take off, you know, like life is not an endless extension of to-do lists. And I think there's probably some things when you write that list that you don't need to do anymore because maybe the product is better and you don't need to worry about that. Or maybe there's two things that are already dealing with the third thing that you're doing so you can remove that. You know, try and think about how you can make your world easier. And, you know, when it comes to sharing a story, remember too, it could be as simple as a conversation at a barbecue. We're all different how we want to communicate and and those very private people may not like social media, but you can still have power and influence. And I mean power in a beautiful, healthy way. Um, I just have by how you communicate and chat with people on the street, people in the supermarket, people at the barbecues, people at the school event, whatever, you know. Just don't underestimate how interesting you are and that people want to hear about this. Well, as someone who is super interesting and also who has that beautiful power and influence in our sector, thank you so much, Julia, for being a guest on the whole story podcast today i've really enjoyed our conversation and you've been so generous with your time wisdom insights and your personal views and life story so thank you so much oh thank you for your time i really appreciate it thanks for listening to this episode of the whole story podcast we really hope you enjoyed it and are feeling inspired and optimistic about putting sustainability into practice on farm i have one last request for you before you go Make sure, whatever platform you're listening to us on, that you hit follow and share the show or episodes with your friends, so that together we can grow our community and inspire sustainability and agriculture in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And thanks again to FMG for partnering with The Whole Story, 
so that we could bring this podcast to life for you all to enjoy. Catch you next time.